Let us pray together. Father God, you are perfect in all your ways. Nothing compares to your holiness. You alone are truth, wisdom, and love. When we woke up this morning, it was you alone who carried us through the night. You have held us by your steadfast love and long-suffering. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us by your gospel through the power of your Holy Spirit to be righteous. We are grateful this morning for your Holy Spirit, which convicts us of sin and righteousness and brings to our mind all that you have commanded us to do. We confess that we have sinned against you. In times of trouble, our first reaction is against you. We try to control, we self-justify, and we blame you, God. Give us grace to trust and hope in you sooner than we do. We pray that we would turn away from our idolatrous ways and give you alone our adoration and our praise. By your spirit, may we throw off everything that hinders us and every sin that so easily entangles us that we might shine brightly as image bearers of you, Father. Equip us by your spirit to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Our souls long to be with you, Lord, to dwell in your house forever. Give us endurance to run the race that is set before us. We pray specifically this morning for Temple Philadelphia and Burkina Faso, and for their pastor, our friend Marcel. May they shine brightly in, your, in their community, and may you hold them fast in your love. We pray also for Salem Heights Church and Pastor Justin Green. May they shine brightly in our community, and may you hold them fast in your love. This is reality, that by your blood, Jesus, you have made us a family, a holy nation set apart for you. Our desire is to rest with you in eternal glory. But for now, grant us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to obey your word. May the worship found in this place be a pleasing aroma to you, God. In the name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tyler. You may have a seat. Thanks, everyone, for being here, and thank you for being eager to hear from the word of the Lord. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 12. Our text today is Daniel 12, verses 1 through 4. Have you heard the saying that happiness is a journey, not a destination? Or maybe you've heard somewhere that it's about uh, the journey, not the destination. And I think we use this saying sometimes to inspire us to enjoy the present moment or to not worry how long it takes to get somewhere. And that's, that's fine. I'm not here to shame you if you posted that on your Instagram this week. But our text today is actually concerned with the exact opposite of that. Our text is concerned completely with the destination. As the culmination of the vision that Daniel's been given in chapters 10 through 12, we have the eternal destination of the exiles in view. And not only the destination of the loyal exiles, but also the exiles who were in idolatry. So that destination is the title of our sermon for today. You can write it down. Standing before the King of Kings, deliverance or judgment. So let's read the text together now. Daniel 12, verses 1 through 4. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. 
and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So to get our bearings and to recap where we are in the story, remember from chapter 10, Daniel was mourning for three weeks. He was fasted from delicacies and meat and wine, and he was even neglecting his skincare routine. <laughs> Things were getting pretty serious. He was near the end of his life and already at the end of his rope. We know from chapter 9 his desperation to see Israel restored to the promised land. He called on the covenant in Deuteronomy and Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, and he cried out to God, we've sinned. Sorry, my microphone's struggling today. Uh, we've sinned. And we've acted wickedly. His face and all of his energy is turned towards Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship of Yahweh. In response to his prayer and his humble heart, he receives a vision. He's told what's to come, but instead of a vision of Israel's restoration to Israel, he's given a broader vision, a more glorious restoration, more glorious than he could have even imagined. Earlier in the vision in chapter 11, we see the people of God being attacked. You remember that? So before we get to the deliverance, Daniel's given insight into the nature of true Israel's trouble. Chapter 12 here is the heavenly parallel behind that earthly trouble. That's our first point for this text, the spiritual reality behind trouble. At this point in the vision given to Daniel, he's taken outside of his earthly perspective in chapter 11, and he's given a glimpse into what's happening at a spiritual level. The curtains are pulled back, and he sees a heavenly courtroom. We're dealing with an angel, Michael, who we heard about earlier in chapter 10. We're reading about a spiritual realm. This passage, like much of the Bible's explanation of spiritual activity, revolves around the spiritual beings gathered together in a council, judging between humans who are faithful to Yahweh and those who aren't. Our passage uses shorthand, but to the ancient Near Eastern reader, this would have been very apparent. So in Daniel 12, verse 1, when, when we read, at that time shall arise Michael, we're tempted to picture him as one of two giant angels in an intergalactic sword fight or a wrestling match like Godzilla versus King Kong. But the spiritual reality that's revealed here is that when Daniel's people are attacked, a spiritual defender will be their advocate. He'll come to their aid as a judicial defender or as an executioner or as both. Here's a famous example. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. This is a passage that is not about a theological doctrine of spiritual activity, but this gives us insight into the way that the people of the ancient Near East talked about spiritual activity. Job chapter 1, we'll read verses 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God, sons of God is the Bible's way, of saying created spiritual beings. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, when you read Satan, this is not a name. 
This is an activity. Satan means the accuser or the adversary. So when the Lord said to the accuser, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, uh, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. We have this divine council gathered together, considering the faithfulness of the Lord's servant, Job. And God praises Job. He's pleased with his faithfulness, but the adversary can't stand it. His desire is to wreck Job's life, not because he wants him to suffer for suffering's sake, but because he wants to drive a wedge between God and Job. He wants to stir up trouble between Job and God. This is the true nature of spiritual warfare. Amen. This is the kind of attack and trouble that we just saw in the vision in Daniel chapter 11. In verses 30 through 32, we see a rebellious king. He takes action against the holy covenant. The temple is profaned, and the burnt offering is taken away, and the covenant is violated. These are spiritual attacks rooted in a spiritual hate and arrogance, not simple earthly kings that are greedy and arrogant. In Daniel's vision, the rebellious king brings trouble to the people of God in order to separate them from their true king. He brings trouble in order to set himself up as king. Next in our text, we see that Daniel is told that there will be a time of trouble. We're tempted to picture a time of trouble, extreme trouble, in a more traditionally apocalyptic way, like uh, meteors pummeling the earth, or the earth opening up, swallowing continents whole, or toilet paper shortages. <laughs> and maybe those things will happen someday, but that isn't what our text is concerned with. The vision given to Daniel says that the rebellious king will bring trouble to God's people in order to make himself king. And for many of Daniel's people, that did mean the sword. That did mean destruction. That did mean captivity. That did mean extreme suffering. But in the midst of all of that, they could trust that in the heavenly council, they had an advocate. No matter what things look like to us with our earthly senses, God's people are not forgotten. They are not left to fend for themselves. And so our text moves from the true reality of spiritual trouble to our second point, the resurrection to eternal deliverance. In our courtroom scene, a book is opened. Those who are named in the book are given eternal life. We see throughout Scripture that our God is a God of deliverance. He even delivers in the midst of judgment. Think back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Even as our first father and mother are expelled from the garden, God provides a way of deliverance. Through the seed of Eve, through her offspring, he would deliver, he would deliver them. 
even as God floods the earth in judgment in Genesis chapter 6. He shows favor to Noah and his family and delivers them from the flood. Even as he judged the nations of the world at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, he plucks Abraham out of all of the peoples and says, through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And this is to say nothing of the Exodus, God's greatest feat of deliverance for the Israelite people, where he delivers them from a cruel nation. So Daniel has good reason to call on God to deliver Israel back from exile and into their land. But his desire to return from exile is not just because he liked the neighborhood better. Instead, for the people of God to be in the promised land meant that they were being ruled by God. They were protected by God. They were provided for by God. They were worshiping God. They were in the presence of God through his temple. We heard from the psalmist in our first reading today about how how much he wanted to be in the house of the Lord. So if his soul longs and faints to be in the temple, how much more the eternal presence of God. Daniel's prayer for God's people to be in God's presence was answered with a vision. But instead of a vision of returning to the Holy Land, God's faithful people were delivered to God's eternal holy presence. The everlasting state of those who are delivered is described with heavenly language. To use the language of the sky and the stars put them squarely in the location of God's spiritual realm. This doesn't mean they'll turn into stars or be physically glowing. Instead, it's a poetic description. It inspires the reader to envision a reward for enduring the time of trouble without turning their back on God. The vindication of God's people will be a reward beyond measurement. The angel uses the most glorious language Daniel knows, that of the sky and the stars, to capture the imagination for what awaits those who endure. The vision given to Daniel gave the suffering exiles what they needed to endure tribulation. And being captured by that vision for our destination, eternity with God is what will carry us through until the end. Now we have a description of the earthly state of those who would be placed in a place of honor. Those who are wise and turn many to righteousness. Again, the vision here is linked back to chapter 11, and it should be read that way. So turn back just a bit. Go back to Daniel if you're not already there. Daniel chapter 11, verse 33. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. In the midst of that time of trouble where the man of lawlessness, backed by evil spiritual forces, attacks the people of God with the intent of separating them from God. But the wise are not deceived. In fact, the wise will bring many to understanding. There in verse 33, and in chapter 12, verse 3, they lead others to righteousness. In the midst of all of that evil, God's people stay faithful and focused on their mission. The wise in our passage are not wise because they have everything figured out. But instead, they've navigated life and trouble and trials by staying allegiant to Yahweh. The trouble they experienced revealed their allegiance. The formatting in our Bibles obscures this a little bit, 
But what we have here in chapter 12, verse 3, is a poetic couplet, two lines that parallel each other. It's describing the same people two different ways. The wise and those who turn many to righteousness are not two different groups. There's no such thing as accumulating God's wisdom without bursting at the seams with it. To be part of God's people means to be growing in wisdom. Because at some point, someone else is going to need to hear from you what God's teaching you in his word. It's not only the job of the people that are struggling with their microphones to do this. We talk a lot about love as a Christian's. Here's a way you can show love to your sisters and brothers in Christ. Study the Bible. Amen. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but someday someone is going to need to hear what you're reading. Amen. We don't just grow in wisdom for our own sake. Wisdom leads us to care deeply for the eternal state of the people around us. Amen. And the same is true in reverse. At some point, you are going to need to hear from someone else. Amen. At some point, you're going to experience apathy. At some point, an ideology of the world is going to try to grab your heart. It's the normal Christian experience for Amen. doubt to creep into your mind. Amen. You need the people around you to help you at this time. Amen. Clinging to a community who will have your eternal good in mind is essential. Amen. Clinging to a people who are not caught up in the journey, but instead are focused on the destination is essential. And that will prepare us for that day that we will be in God's throne room. Daniel's vision gives the people of God the ability to focus on their mission today because it sets their sights on an eternal vindication. Despite present circumstances, their God rules and he will not forget them. Amen. Not even death can separate them. Amen. Sleeping in the dust is typical biblical imagery for death. But not all will awake to eternal glory. God does not tolerate you believing in someone else. So that leads us to our third point. A reality we see is that there is a resurrection to eternal shame. Israel wasn't in exile because they were obedient to God. They weren't even in exile for lacking moral perfection. Instead, they were sent into exile for worshiping other gods rather than the creator God. Instead of fearing Yahweh, they feared the nations around them. Instead of being a people who were distinct, they assimilated. Israel knew the truth about the one true God, but they did not act on it. So apostate Israelites, that's a fancy way of saying Israel, Israelites who rejected God, were sent into an eternal shame and contempt after their earthly lives were over. There are no Baal worshipers in the presence of God. Amen. And this is a reality for all of the world, not just Israel. So turn with me to John chapter 5. Look at John 5, verse 19. We'll read all the way through 29. And we'll see how all this, this judgment scene is all summed up in Christ. John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. 
and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Doesn't this sound just like our Daniel passage for today? We have a resurrection, a courtroom, authority to judge, and those with believing allegiance are granted eternal life, and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. It's an inescapable fact that we will all stand before the eternal King of Kings with nothing between us but his Son. Will he recognize us as those who honored him? Last week, we heard about several different deceptions that are present in our world today. If you missed last week, make sure you go back and listen. The danger in those deceptions is that they threaten to get in between us and God. They come with new standards of sin and righteousness, new standards of judgment or how to be saved, even new ideas of knowledge and wisdom. But on the day of judgment, those ideologies will melt away. There will be nothing left of of those deceptions. They will not be able to stand in the presence of God. That's why the church has a laser focus on the gospel. The gospel that says that Jesus is the son of God, that he lived a perfectly allegiant life to the father, that he died our death, so that we can share in his resurrection of deliverance. If this is new to you, the fact that we will stand before the creator God's throne and our allegiances will be revealed, then ask the person who invited you if you want to hear more about it. Or look around and find someone who looks like they know what they're doing here and ask them to hear more. No matter how long or short you've been in church, this is a message that our soul needs to hear. You have to decide what to do with this information. It demands a response. There's a temptation to think that uh, if we just don't do too bad, that God will give us a pass on that day of judgment. And it's a good thing if you don't cheat on your taxes. It's It's a good thing if you hardly ever yell at people in public, or if you don't break the really bad rules. You've tapped into common grace. This is the wisdom that God has woven into reality. But trusting in our works ignores the fact that we aren't talking about moral behavior here. This passage is about lordship, the language of honor and shame, judgment and contempt is about lordship. The courtroom is a throne room. This week, go back, read Daniel chapter 7, especially verses 9 and 10. There, the throne of God is issuing forth flames 
consuming all of his enemies. The beasts, the kingdoms of this world are consumed before him. This is about lordship. Our text in Daniel and this text in John are examples of the corkscrew effect through time. And this is something we need to get really used to for when we go through the book of Revelation sometime next year. That's how Jesus can say in verse 25 that an hour is coming and is now here. Jesus is Lord now, and this is a constant reality. We stand before God even now with Jesus either affirming our believing loyalty and advocating for us or executing judgment. This is true now, and it will be true in its ultimate form on that final day of the Lord, that destination. The way we live our lives now is a preview of our eternal state. Even as our gaze is lifted to eternal glory in the presence of God, we're grounded to the present because of what we do today. Because what we do today matters. Not because of works, but because of submission to lordship. When we talk about judgment and being in this courtroom, throne room scene, we should be feeling some conviction. And so I want to talk about that right now as we talk about judgment. The Bible talks about a godly fear. And the Holy Spirit will use this courtroom scene to lead us to humility and earnestness and joy. How can this lead to joy? Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. This is the reality of the gospel, is that in the midst of a judgment scene, we have deliverance through submission to his lordship. 1 John chapter 4, we'll read 15 through 19. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. There we have the presence. The presence of God is there. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So when we sing with gratefulness to God for what he's done for us, what he's done is he's given us the ability to have confidence in that day of judgment, that he is faithful when we submit to him and his lordship, that he has the grace to forgive all of our sins. This idea of abiding in him and him abiding in you, this is the prayer of the exile. This is Daniel's ultimate, the ultimate fulfillment to Daniel's prayer. Amen. This is the grace of God. In the same way, the Holy Spirit uses conviction to lead us to repentance. Amen. This is the message of Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So if you feel conviction thinking about this judgment scene, it's the work of a loving father, patiently correcting his child for the sake of their eternal well-being. Act on it now, and he will abundantly pardon. But the accuser is at work as well. This is, he has a heyday with this. He uses condemnation to bury us and to separate us from God. This is the nature of spiritual warfare. He lies to you that your sin is too much for God's grace. He uses the courtroom scene to accuse God of injustice. 
This is the spiritual trouble that hates us, seeing us close to God. So discerning between the two, between godly conviction and the accusations of the enemy is another way that your community can help you. This is why you need people who will turn you to repentance. So find a person that you trust and share with them so they can help you discern whether you're experiencing godly conviction to lead you to repentance or condemnation from the accuser. This is one of the ways you can utilize your pastors as well. We are committed to helping the people of this church make it to that destination, that throne room, after a life filled with submission to the Lordship of Christ. This leads us to our fourth point now, and that's contentment in God's reality. Turn back to Daniel 12 if you're not there already. We'll reread verse 4 to remind ourselves where we are. Daniel 12, verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So we've come to the end of the vision, and like any good vision, it's recorded in a book and sealed for posterity. To shut up the words and seal the book were not for the sake of secrecy. Instead, it was for security. The practice of the ancient Near East was when uh, something was recorded, uh, some legal document was recorded, the original would be copied, and then the original would be sealed. It would have the mark of the two parties involved, along with the scribe who recorded it. And the original was put away for safekeeping, and the copy was available to be read. So this statement should not be abused into thinking that the vision has a secret meaning. In Daniel 10, verse 1, it says that Daniel understood the true word about the conflict. He understood the vision. The vision, like the entire book of Daniel, is the true message that in spite of present difficulties, God is in control and he will have the final victory. That is the message that is sealed and secured in this book. About the last phrase of Daniel 12, 4, that many will run to and fro and knowledge will increase, instead of reading this as some prediction about the future, it's far more likely to be another pronouncement of judgment. Not all knowledge is good. We don't have to look any further than the sin in the garden where, where our first parents reached to, the, reached to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to accept a way of thinking and living that is not from the giver of life. Knowledge obtained from sources other than God has a twisting effect on us leading us to stray from his lordship. To run to and fro seeking knowledge when the truth of all reality is in our hands is foolishness. It's a tragedy. So Daniel and his fellow exiles are invited to trust in the vision given in response to this humble prayer and repentance. Now that same invitation is given to us when it comes to reading Daniel. We can be content when the chaos swirls all around us. We, of all people, can have the most confidence and hope because we know that the one who gave this vision to Daniel is in control and his words never fail. We've journeyed through the vision of Daniel 10 through 12 and through the whole book, not for the sake of the journey, but for the sake of the destination. Since we are exiles like Daniel, this passage has a ton of application to our lives. But we'll look at just a few questions to help us be shaped by our text. Number one, 
How do you respond to trouble? Do you view trouble as an opportunity to reveal your loyalty? When you have difficult situations or dif there's difficulties in your relationships, do you turn to worldly solutions to solve them? If the enemy uses trouble in this world to try to separate us from God, do we use um, trying to organize our lives better or some sort of other self-help method when we should be applying spiritual tools to the spiritual warfare? The point of spiritual warfare is to stay loyal to God in the face of trials. Amen. Number two, are you part of a community to help you grow in wisdom and turn you to righteousness? Do you have even one person in your life that you can ask to speak directly to you about where you need to turn to righteousness? Not a person that flatters you, not a group that's an echo chamber for you, but someone who loves you enough, who cares enough about your eternal state to speak directly. Number three, and this is, this is one worth some time. When you hear about judgment, which way does it drive you? The great invitation of Scripture is that in the midst of all of this judgment, God is inviting you to his lordship, to his merciful forgiveness. His judgment only drives away people who want to be their own king, who want to live in rebellion. This is worth some time this week. When you hear about judgment, which way does it drive you? If it leads you to reject him, then you're rejecting a, a lot. You're rejecting him unto shame and eternal contempt. Number four, what are your sights set on? The exile who's able to endure has their sights set on the eternal glory that is promised to them in this passage. So if your sights are set on the difficulty of life or not going to the bad place, maybe you need to change them. Instead, let your mind and heart be captured by the vision of the glory that awaits those who endure in believing loyalty. Let's be those people who are captured by that vision. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message, this promise that if we endure in submitting to you in lordship, if we endure trouble and we resist the enemy from all of his attacks, that you have grace for us that you will welcome us into your eternal presence and we'll have a glory that is beyond description. Let us be people that are moved by that, to grow in wisdom, to grow in turning one another to righteousness, and to be committed to each other, to see each other through all the way to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.